0: Timothy chapter 6 this morning. Um, uh, We looked at the first two verses. That's where we're going to be as we um, work toward the tail end of of this pastoral epistle um, and prepare to go into Paul's second letter to Timothy um, in just a few weeks. But over the past couple of weeks, we have been Just breaking down the instruction of Paul, uh, really the instruction of the Lord through Paul for this church in Ephesus and this young pastor. And many of um, kind of the titles for the past couple of weeks have been uh, for the church. We're in for the church part, um, I believe, six or seven at this point for the church instruction from Paul uh, for the church in Ephesus. And so... um, Yeah, I'm excited about these two verses. I think that there's a lot here, and it gives us just a really incredible opportunity to talk about some things um, that I I, I hope are going to be – Really encouraging, and at the same time, uh, I hope that there's some clarification brought to maybe some of our thoughts, or at least some arguments that we can now adopt um, when it comes to addressing others' issue with the Bible. And so, um, I want to begin with a a question, right? I want us to think about this as we work through our time together uh, this morning. How does the gospel and the fellowship that we enjoy with God, through Christ, transform the way that we see and relate to those around us. Now there's a lot there, isn't there? And so let me say that one more time. How does the gospel um, and the fellowship that we enjoy with God through Christ, and so right there there's this acknowledgement um, on our part that the fellowship that is available with God, the fellowship that we as Christians enjoy with God is a result of the work of someone else, right? That we can enjoy fellowship with God because of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished, right? That is this um, repentance and this gift of faith. It is this confession that produces for you and I fellowship with God, fellowship that is otherwise interrupted. All we have to do is go back to um, Genesis um, chapter 3, and we see interrupted fellowship that, as Paul says in his letters to the Romans, um, has been inherited by all of us, and that in turn, to have fellowship with God, we are reliant on Christ. And so how does the gospel and the fellowship that we enjoy with God through Christ, this truth that Christianity is, is centered on, that separates it from every other religious system in the world, how does this truth transform the way that we see and relate with those around us? The way that we see and relate with Those around us. This is the question that we have been exploring over the past few weeks as we have walked verse by verse through 1 Timothy chapter 5, observing Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian church by way of their pastor, Timothy, towards an honoring of various groups of people in the church, a God-glorifying honoring of various groups of people within the church. And so let's just lay out from the past two weeks Paul's points of F emphasis. And so if you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, this is really important. Okay, zone in, focus in on this as it is going to help us to understand the greater context of what Paul is addressing here with Timothy to the church in Ephesus. In verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5, we see emphasized from Paul this truth. This truth that says that the gospel changes the way that we see and care for people. Okay, He begins with the widow in verses 1 through 16. The gospel changes the way that we see and care for the widow. And we didn't stop there, right? Because I don't think Paul would stop here. Although the instruction that he provides in the first 16 verses is specific toward the widow, it doesn't stop at the widow. In fact, we continue on and we see that the gospel changes the way that we relate not only with the widow, caring for the widow, but for those that are oftentimes most overlooked, right? Those that are most taken advantage of, those that are most marginalized in society, by society, having no one to care for them. And so Paul's instruction to the church is to lean into this problem. Right, to lean into this issue of, a, a, of a, um, a failure on behalf of some to care for those who are most marginalized, um, while at the same time exercising compassion. Um, these these widows um, and to distinguish them from those who are very obviously working the system for their own benefit. Paul makes this distinction, this, um, this separation in the first 16 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says there are true widows who have no one to care for them and as a result, the church ought to step in and fill this void. This is not a command that goes unnoticed by the church today, right? We ought to hear this and and see And ask, how does this inform the way that we do ministry, the way that we live out the gospel? It's incredibly applicable to us today. But there is this distinction that Paul makes. You have one group who are in need of being cared for by the church, and you have this other group. of of younger widows who are taking advantage of the church. They are not concerned with righteousness, but they are most concerned with fleshly desires. And Paul's instruction to them is, do not add these women to the widow's role. Okay, this list that the church is is keeping and maintaining that assists them in making sure that they are uh, meeting the needs and filling the void where uh, needed. And so how does this fit into the bigger picture? Again, this is super important. It doesn't relate specifically, right, to what we see this morning, but we are in the ballpark, right? We see that there is um, this care that is a reflection of God's heart. Care for the widow, care for the marginalized, care for those that are um, oftentimes most neglected. This all displays, reflects God's heart for those that are oftentimes most easily exploited, Right? And, the, and the sacrifice of Christ for the spiritually bankrupt. We recognize our need as we observe the need of the widow. Right, We're functioning on two planes, a physical plane and a spiritual plane. And as we observe the physical needs of one particular group, we must recognize our own spiritual need. And we see, again, that God has a heart that meets the need. Meeting our our greatest need even, that being forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus and fellowship with him as we've already talked about a number of times this morning. You guys get the picture. We've seen a number of times over the past few months how the gospel shapes our submission to and care for leadership. I'm going all the way back to Mark now. And so if you've been with us for a while, this is a theme that we've talked about uh, for a very long time as we see God's word talk about it. For a very long time, in numerous locations and different places, we see this instruction to look to the gospel and how it informs our care for leadership and submission on a governmental level, right on a societal level, and as we observed last week on a church level. Hang with me right here. Let's look at verses 17 through 25 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. We see how a love and appreciation for word ministry shapes A church's care for those gifted by the Lord to care for and lead, 1 Timothy chapter 3, His church. Why is that so important? Why are we going all the way back to chapter 3 now? Well, because it's important to realize that the church is God's church, right? It's His church. He expresses explicit ownership of it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so that's important and helpful for us to realize we observed an emphasis, from the Lord on holiness and the importance of the office of elder. As certain, certain practices are affirmed that protect both faithful elders as well as the fellowship. And so how did it fit into the bigger picture? We addressed that explicitly last week. We see in this and through this God's love for, again, his church. right? The bride of Christ and his faithfulness too. Through redemptive history, which this is this, right? This is redemptive history. We're observing redemptive history play out in and around us to set a people apart as a holy nation. And in doing so, to equip men to lead in submission to the headship of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. This is where we've been over the past few weeks. Today, we transition out of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Only we continue with this theme of gospel-transformed relationship. The church and widows, right? The, The marginalized, the forgotten, Right, the church and elders, elders and the church, and now this relationship between slaves and their masters. In the original context, we could best understand this as an employee-employer relationship, and we're going to address some of these major distinctions and points in just a few moments. But I want you to write this down. If you take notes, I want you to write this down. This is our big idea for the morning. We try to take one of these a week to help us to wrap our mind around what we see God's Word saying and communicating. If you take notes, which I encourage you to do, okay, if you're not a note-taker, consider becoming a note-taker, Yeah, I think it would be really helpful, right? We talk about a lot, and um, I think it's just really beneficial for us to go back and continue to consider what we have seen. And so, um, write this down. Everyone feels convicted now. Good. Mission accomplished. Here we go. God's love and adoption of sinners shapes the way that we see and respond to authorities, magnifying the gospel's work. To the world. I think this is what Paul is emphasizing to Timothy and to the church uh, as he writes these words God's love and adoration of sinners shapes the way that we see and respond to authorities, and as a result, and so there's a cause and effect here, magnifies the gospel's work in the world. These are some themes that we're going to unpack over the course of our time together through two observations. First, a gospel shaped picture of work. A gospel shaped picture of work. And you go, wait a minute, you're telling me that the gospel shapes and informs, um, like, even work? Yes, absolutely. It informs and it shapes everything, and so we're going to observe that from these two verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. Number two, a gospel-shaped perspective of mission, and so what do we think about work, and how does the gospel inform and shape the way that we work, and then how does the gospel shape our perception of mission, These are two things that we're going to talk about as we seek to better understand this big idea. And so I hope you wrote that down. That's something that these two points are going to assist us in understanding. Okay? Everybody good? You guys with me so far? Amen. Praise God. Caleb's with me. All right, here we go. Everybody else? We're, we're, we're going to start now. So um, let's look uh, here in verse 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. Um, but the first thing that I want us to do is address some very specific points concerning the slave-master relationship that perhaps many of your Bibles um, use that language. Um, to get this, um, we have to be super clear that the slave-master relationship that Paul is speaking towards is not that of our nation's dark history concerning slave-master relations. Why is that important? Well, because um, there are many who seek to discredit the Bible pointing towards um, passages like this in an effort to paint this very false picture of God as a reason to question the validity of his word. You see the Bible talking all over the place about slavery and masters and the way that this society functions with these, um, with these certain roles being implemented. Uh, it's, a, it's a big point that we have to understand that the model given by the Lord for the employee, employer, or the slave master relationship is not reflected in the history books through an unpacking of the atrocities of 17th and 18th century slavery in the United States. If that's the framework that we're bringing to this passage, we need to understand that our framework is in need of um, being changed. Right, that we have to shift our frameworks, this is not the model given by um, God reflected in 21st century human trafficking ruling through fear and force exploiting others to the detriment of of their detriment, your own personal gain and pleasure, that's not what we're seeing Paul talk about here, in fact if you want to know what God thinks about um, the enslaved, right, in this context that is certainly um, awful and undesirable, um, then we can look at his word. We see that there's actually an incredible story of God's power and his heart for the enslaved and his hatred of human brutality and oppression in the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible. You go all the way back to Genesis. You work through Genesis. You come to um, Exodus, and you see this incredible story of God um, liberating, freeing a people from underneath oppression and bondage in Egypt. We see God's instruction. For slave-master relationship in Exodus 21, a relationship that is marked by and reflects care, love, and commitment, not cruelty. And so if we think about what the history books have to say about this relationship, we would most certainly say, this is awful. Right, That this is undesirable and certainly not pleasing to the Lord. To which God's word says absolutely. Right? The atrocities that we read about in our nation's history from history books are things that we wish that we could go back and erase. That's what fuels the church's desire to see an eradication of racism and sexism and classism and slavery in our own context here and now. Right. And, and so we look to God's word and we say, what does God's word have to say? Well, we see that the relationship is, in fact, very different in Paul's letter to Philemon, this tiny, tiny little book tucked away um, towards the latter end of uh, your New Testament. We see uh, Paul instructing a master, calling him to receive one Onesimus. And I'm summarizing all of this very quickly for you guys. Right. A rebellious, thieving slave who had met Paul and been saved by God back into the household. As a, get this, a brother. The the story only, um, it only continues. Spiritually, we see God's heart is displayed, extended, and pierced as Christ rescues those enslaved by sin. Remember we're always talking on two levels here right we're talking on a um hey back to the board we're talking on a on a physical level right but then we're also talking On a spiritual level, there's always two levels that we're talking about. And so as we consider the way that the gospel informs this relationship, we at the same time look into it and we go, Man, I see my own need within this story. I recognize my enslavement to sin and my need to be set free. Man, that's the cross, right? Christ redeems us. He sets us free. He redeems our service and our work. As we're freed from bondage and oppression, now living in service to Christ. This is the idea that Paul uh, writes about in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. He says, there was a time in which you were slaves to sin. That's familiar, right? Slaves to sin. And as a result, had no obligation to do what is right, given that you had Paraphrasing here, no ability to do what was right. But whereas you were slaves to sin, you are now, listen to this, because when we understand our being set free from slavery and bondage under sin, we need to understand what we are set free to, what we are set free for, and what it even means to be set free. Paul does a wonderful job of articulating this for us in Romans chapter 6. He says, you were slaves to sin, but you are now slaves for God. And so when we consider our freedom in a spiritual realm, we must understand that we are simply trading one chain for another. That our freedom is found in in this bondage, in this being held captive by and to Christ. Does that make sense? Right? And so are we freed? Absolutely. But then we are connected to Christ and we are bound with him in life by way of his death and resurrection. And as a result, we have this new life that as a result exists with new purpose. Does this make sense? Are you guys following me here? New life, new purpose. This is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel um, accomplishes. Employment is transferred. That's an incredible idea to think about, isn't it? For believers in this room, for Christians, employment is transferred. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Christ, right? We we exist under the reign of our king, right? We submit ourselves again to his headship and his instruction as employees to the great employer God. Slavery persists, only now we labor for Christ. This changes the way that we see Christ while changing the way that we see one another. This is what a new gospel-informed perspective looks like. This is what a new gospel-informed perspective looks like. Let's unpack this just a little bit more. The gospel must change. Notice what I said there. Okay, the gospel must change. Change. And so if you're in this room and you're saying, okay, yep, I'm a Christian and slave to Christ, got it, new life, all right, I'm on board. Then what does that mean for our lives and what they must look like? Well, this statement is going to um is gonna help us to, to begin to wrap our minds around that. I pray. The gospel must change the way that we see and submit to one another in life, in the church, and in work. Right? Gospel implications, not only for work, which certainly exists, right? Um, Raise your hand if you work for someone in here. Not like your boss is in the room, but like you work for someone. You have a boss. You have an overseer, right? Um, Here's the deal. We would acknowledge, perhaps, or maybe this is new information to you, at which case this is going to be a little tough at first to swallow, but hang with me for a while, okay? The gospel informs and shapes the way that we work, the, 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 the way that we go about working. The gospel shapes that. It informs that. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just inform the way that we work, but it informs work relationships. That's what we see from 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. How Christians laboring under the leadership of, in this case, fellow Christians show them honor in a way that displays an accurate picture of Christ To and for the world. Did you even even grasp that there were those types of implications for your work relationships? That your work relationships model for the world submission to Christ. Let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes, To those who labor under the yoke of slavery... Treat your masters with honor and respect. That's the instruction. Now hopefully we have this much clearer picture of the slavery that's being talked about. We perhaps have a new framework on this slavery and this relationship. But we do see that there is instruction for uh, the church to honor and respect uh, those who um, who are exercising authority over them in the workplace. The expectation for Christian living. This is the expectation for for Christian living, right? The day in which Paul is writing is much like the day that we are living in, our day, our own personal context. You have um, the man. Right? And then you have like the man, right? Like we're all working for the man. You guys have heard that terminology before, right? Like the man, this one who exercises authority over the others. You have one group that is oftentimes employee pitted against another employer. Those in authoritative positions seen by those under them as, um, and if you've ever thought this of your boss, um, Public repentance. Here we go. Um, Haughty, self-centered, self-righteousness, power-hungry players. And then you have this class underneath them who, who observe, um, the or, or above them, the authoritative figures who who observe those under them perhaps as lazy and lacking self-motivation. What's Paul's primary point here? Well, it's really easy. That the gospel brings clarity and a different perspective between these groups, especially toward fellow Christians. Especially towards fellow Christians. Those in positions of power. Are to practice. And so if you are an authoritative figure in here, if you are a boss or one day aspire to be a boss and want to know you want to be a boss, right? Think about that. Be a boss, right? You, what does it look like to be a Christian and to be in an authoritative position over others in a workplace? Well, here it is, right? Those are to exercise and practice fairness. Seeking to be fair, desiring to be fair, right? (laughs) Understanding the great responsibility that they have to lead those who work under them well. That last word is really important, isn't it? Right To lead them, but to lead them well, right? To desire what is good for them. Right to see this as a major responsibility to to lead in a position of authority over those who work for you in the way that models compassionate and tender care. Two primary characteristics of our King Jesus. And so the way that bosses lead those who work under them is with the same characteristics observable in Christ. Why? Why is that so important? Again, it models for the world the care of Christ. It models, models his character. This is something that the church was undoubtedly in need of being reminded of. It's something that we are undoubtedly in need of being reminded of. However, in this instance, the group that's being addressed is a little bit different, okay, perhaps even surprising. It appears as though, based on what we read in verses 1 and 2, that the correction from Paul is actually pointed towards certain believing employees and their posture toward their employer. That's surprising to me. Right, You would think that it would be, okay, as a uh, boss, as an employer, this is the way that you are to lead those who are under you, those things that we just said, and that that would be an issue in need of addressing. But in this particular instance, what we observe is it is the actually the employee and how they are relating with the employer that is the problem. And so let's be a little bit more clear contextually about what's going on here. Within the fellowship in Ephesus, there are Christian slaves leaning on the equality that the gospel produces as cause to disrespect their believing masters. Does that make sense? Let's unpack it a little bit further, right? There's this sense in which you observe one group, an employee group, saying to the employer group, wait a second, we have equality quality in Christ, which is certainly true, right? That we are um, existing on the same plane, which is certainly true. But they're leaning on this as a point that produces within them a, a point of rebellion even perhaps to where which they say we're on the same level like you and me we're on the same plane and so as a result like i'm not most concerned with what you have to say or the leadership that you are trying to practice over me which is certainly not desirable behavior and so again we want to be clear okay let's talk adoption for just a moment It's one of my favorite words. All of my favorite words begin with the letter A, and I think I just added a fifth, adoption. What a great word. Adoption by God through Christ changes the way that we relate with him and the way that we relate with one another. Right? We are rescued from sin's ultimate consequence, which if you're unfamiliar, here it is, bondage to death. And we experience now freedom in Christ. And a day is set in the future in which we will dwell with him forever. And what we're saying is this, that this reality informs everything. It informs everything. It informs the decisions that we make. Right? It informs the things that we say. And the things that we don't say, this, this truth, this reality uh, informs the way that we love our spouses and pursue our neighbors on down the line until we come to interpersonal, personal work, interpersonal relationships skills within the workplace. The gospel informs it all. This truth This reality of the redemption and adoption that we enjoy through Christ and this day that is set in future in which we will dwell with him forever. And the common ground that we now um, occupy with every other sinner in need of redemption. We're all there together. And we see that this reality informs everything. And so I want us to remember the point that we're drawing out here, point one, this is where we are, a gospel-shaped picture of work, specifically leadership and submission. Paul says implicitly. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean, implicit? Well, it's the underlying, right? Like, it's implied. We understand this based on the other things that Paul has to say. Paul says, implicitly, masters, love those under your authority as employees well, and desire what is good for them. That's a helpful note for us to consider. Explicitly, Paul is saying this, slaves, employees, your equality, which you enjoy as a result of the redeeming work of Jesus ought to inspire greater service and submission as a good worker not less that was the issue Right? is that the equality that was being enjoyed by way of adoption into the family of God by way of the sacrifice of Jesus was producing this heart within certain employees that Paul is addressing here that they need not listen to what their employers have to say that they reject their authority and do their own thing there is no indication that there is um, that there is, uh, that there is uh, poor leadership from the authority figures that Paul is, um, uh, that Paul is implicitly talking about here, right? There's no indication that the em- these employees are being treated poorly, right? This isn't a um, a, a, a righteous rejection of um, of impure practices, right? But this is just a an ex- excusing of rebellion, leaning on the equality that gospel produces. Paul says in verse one, remind them of this. Right? Remind them of of what Christ has done and now how they have this unique opportunity to model and display this to the world by way of their submission and service to those in leadership positions both of you right are living with this this new gospel shaped Jesus exalting context due to your adoption and so understand employees employers you guys are looking more like family now Than anything else. And Paul says this. That the the power of this picture. Will be drawn out further within culture. As they understand this distinction. And how it's being brought together. In this new and beautiful way. Look at what he writes in verse 2. Those who have believing masters. Must not be disrespectful. Disrespectful. Right? They must not be insolent on the ground that they are brothers, and as a result, must serve all the better. Right? They must be more determined to serve them. This is an idea which brings the most amount of clarity to what Paul is saying. Right? Historically, there has been this very clear line between classes. Slaves and masters. Society gets this. Communities and cities get this. It is expected. Only this isn't how Jesus' people function. While there is still, get this, a clear line. Right? There's this clear headship issue still. There is still the employer, and there is still the employee. There is still a clear line of authority. There is now a totally new perspective on relationship. And so what does that look like? Let me draw this out for just a moment because this is super helpful. Okay? This is what it has looked like. Right? You've got the employer, uh, er, right? and then you have um, down here these employees, Right? And society would say, okay, this is one particular class, this is one particular group, and this is an altogether different class down here, right? That this group is better than this group, right? Now, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says this, that while there is still this clear distinction, right, headship, right, those who are in charge and exercising authority placed there by the Lord to lead and love well, it looks different, okay? It looks different to the world now. It no longer looks so much like this, although there is a clear distinction, but it looks like this. Now, what's the difference there? Well, there's this—they're there's the, on the same line, right? There's this familial aspect to what we see here. The same way that if I uh, stood here, you guys know those bumper stickers that typically you can tell, like. Um, what family dynamics are by, like, number of, like, little stick figure people on the back and, like, big stick figure people and, like, medium-sized stick figure people. Like, it's, they really need to teach a class. I don't really understand everything that's going on with those. But but we almost get this picture of this is what it looks like now, right? There's still, like, we understand dad. Maybe he's got, like, um, a hat on. Mr. Anderson, I wish I could draw a cowboy hat up here, but I don't think I can um, quite tackle that one this morning. And then you've got one with, with hair. There's still the clear rolls, maybe a little baseball hat here, right? Timmy the baseball player. Um, That's awful. Uh, But you guys get the idea, right? There's still this clear distinction between what's going on here, but there's now this totally different dynamic that's playing itself out, right? Do we get that? Do we see that? Man, this, this is shouting certain specific truths about who our God is and what he does through this relational dynamic between employees and employers, do we get that? And so the encouragement then is that those in positions, of, um, those in positions uh, of authority, right, this guy, right, ought to lead these well, perhaps in a way that says, not as this would, I am clearly better than you. Right, but instead, I'm occupying this position that has this very unique role and this very unique call to care for you well and to lead you well. Whereas these are now going, we're not saying, "Man, because we're on the same plane, we desire not listen to you." But instead, we understand that you um, that you desire what is good for us. That you are equipping and enabling us to. Work, right? That you are employing us, and therefore we're not going to work less hard, but we're going to work harder. That's the message that Paul's emphasizing here in the first two verses. Do we get that? Do we understand the difference? And how insane this would be to the culture, right? The church is only standing out more as this type of thing is being implemented. And what Paul says, I mean, this is what it looks like. Right? This is what it looks like to live in these new um, these new relationships. This is what the gospel does. There is this there is this line, right? But there's also this clear this clear headship, right? This is same thing. we've got three people up here, right? And we think about the way that this displays not only what the gospel does, but who our God is—Trinitarian, one God, three persons, right? And we see that this is we're just this is being displayed. Right, all through the instruction from Paul to to Timothy, and so this drives us to our second point. And so the first point is this gospel shaped picture of work. If you're here and you're an employee, right? Paul is instructing you, especially if you're working for an a believing employer, to serve well, to work. Hard. And he unpacks in just a moment the reason behind all this. It drives us to our second observation. We see a gospel shaped picture of work, but in addition, we see a gospel shaped perspective on mission. Well, what do you mean? Well, for the Christian, we must say that mission is greater than merit when it comes to respect and submission to, uh, or in the fellowship. This comes out as we explore Paul's call to the church. Of course, believing slaves are expected to honor their masters as they lead well, treating you as a valued member of the family. Right? This, is the, this is the letter. The heart, however, is that Christian slaves would honor their masters even in moments that they don't deserve it. Now that's an altogether different animal, isn't it? Right. Well, I'm totally cool at like, submitting to you and like, working well when um, you are deserving, right? But as soon as you are undeserving, then we're reevaluating this whole like, dynamic between you and I, right? That, that as long as you're leading well, then I'm cool like, with all of this going on. But if you're not, then my um, entrance into this call looks much different, are we familiar with this? We get this idea. We understand, um, we understand this, this concept, and it's a massive cultural shift. Let's consider the, um, the back and forth between culture and gospel for just a moment. Culture says, um, earn my respect, and what? Like, I'll give it to you, right? You don't earn my respect. I'm not going to give you any respect. You guys familiar with this? You ever heard any type of this before? Okay, let's continue on. Culture says that you give respect to get respect, right? Culture says that that there cannot be this level of care within classes existing on opposite sides of this massive chasm. Consider the way that this would have played itself out in the context in which we are reading. The difference between this and this in terms of uh, material prosperity, right, and what one has is, is infinitely wide, right? It's a very wide gap. Culture would say that there is no way for this to be displayed when such a chasm exists between the classes, Only that's not what the gospel says, right? The gospel says that this chasm between sinners and their holy and unapproachable creator could not be more wide, right? That that it could not be more vast, but that through the intentionality and eternal foresight, God has brought sinners into the presence of himself through the suffering of the God-man Jesus, Right? His death and his bodily resurrection, God bridges the gap between himself and his creation before bridging the gap between creation. Do we see how that works? If God can bridge the gap between who we are right, and who he is through the person, work, sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection back to life, then certainly he can bridge the gap between these two groups. And that's exactly what he does. That's what happens. That's what Paul's emphasizing in verse 1 and on into verse 2. And so, all of this, this gospel perspective, who God is and what God has done, leads us to adopt into the following position. And so, here we are, we are corporally affirming the following position. And I feel like that we individually need to adopt the following position, right? That our allegiance to Christ and God's love for us must shape the way that we relate with other people. And then this, this plays itself out in all venues, right? Like we're talking about the work relationship, but we consider the, the, the relationship between um, family members. We consider this uh, and the relationship within the local church friends right strangers neighbors enemies the gospel informs all of these things this reflection on what god has done the implications being that if it doesn't then you are not grasping what god has done for you in christ wait Wait a second. So if, if there's this failure to adopt this type of mentality that we see Paul encouraging the people toward here, let's put ourselves in the context. Paul would say, listen, if you're not getting this, like if this is not, if what I'm writing is not transforming the way that you're relating with those in authoritative positions over you. If it doesn't change it, then you are clearly not grasping what Christ has done for us in bridging this infinitely wide, vast, clear chasm between who he is and who you are. That's incredible, right? Like, that's huge. Paul is not saying that certain evil practices from A master to his slave should be excused under the cloak of honor. That's not what he's saying here, right? If a master were acting unmasterly, right, in terms of obedience to Christ and value for others, Paul would certainly provide counsel in that situation. They would change the, the application and the response. If you or someone that you know or have known or is currently been the target of harassment from those in positions of power or authority, respect does not include honoring, does not include excusing and continued endurance of this behavior. Sin is never supported by God. And therefore... We change the way that we look at these behaviors. But what Paul is saying is that slaves ought to extend honor to their masters, even in certain unhonorable moments, in order that, verse 1, the name of God and the teaching might not be reviled. I was thinking about the best way to understand the connection between these two things, and I, I naturally thought about a theme that occurs a lot in the Bible, and it's the theme of marriage. Hey, we see this theme all over the place, and it's, it's depicted in terms of Christ's relationship with the church. Right, We see that explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But I want us to consider this this submission to, this honoring, this respecting within the confines of marriage, what that looks like and how it then helps us maybe to understand this a bit more clearly. You see, Courtney and I were married Right, <laughs> we're, we're married. Courtney is my bride, and we committed um, six years ago, just over six years ago, um, before the Lord and like a ton of witnesses, right? Um, to like to love and to honor and to respect uh, one another in a myriad and through a myriad of circumstances, both good and bad, until we die or our King comes back. At the same time, right? Like, I understand that there are moments that I am undeserving of Courtney's love based on my, uh, my behavior, right? How I respond in certain instances, right? Things that, that sometimes I do or don't do that say and send a very different message at times. I can be um, moody, right? Selfish. Can lack tact and patience, Yet, in this and through this, in spite of my being undeserving, Courtney seeks to love me and point me back to Christ. Right? In these these moments of undeservedness, she elects to draw my sin to my attention in an act of love. As a spouse committed to God's glory, the sanctification and joy that he provides as well as my good and transformation and me vice versa. It goes both ways, right? All in an effort to what? Well, to portray accurately, the best that we can, the character of Christ to the world around us, right? Right? There are times that as Christians, we are most certainly, right, in rebellion, right? That we are not doing what we ought to do, and we're doing what we ought not to do, right? And if it were purely then performance-based, Christ's covenant love for the church, then we would find ourselves in a very precarious situation. Only that's not what happens, right? Right? Christ is committed to us, right? He's committed to our transformation. He's committed to our sanctification, to progress us from one degree of holiness to the next, that his love does not leave us, right? But he sticks close to us, that he is with us. And so you think about the way that this works within a marriage relationship. You think about the way that this works between a, um, an employee-employer relationship, right? And you're like, wait a second. This just went to a level that I'm uncomfortable with. Hang out with me for just a second, right? We go, all right, well, within the marital relationship, like as Courtney loves me in the midst of my undeservingness, she displays to the world, for the world, Christ's commitment to the church. All right? and, and as I do that, extend that same to Courtney. We are displaying this accurate, best we can representation of Christ's love and commitment to the church. And so, Paul's instruction here is not, "Hey, when your masters are deserving." of honor and respect, then give them honor and respect. But it's when your believing masters are deserving and undeserving, display honor and respect in an effort to display this gospel-informed relationship and this brand-new perspective on mission. We said it in the beginning, and you might have missed it. It was just a short snippet, right? But it's that mission is more important than merit. Mission is more important than merit. Merit says, you don't deserve my respect you have not earned my respect. Mission says, in, in this effort to display for the world, to you, and even to remind myself of who Christ is and what he has done for me. His commitment, I am going to continue in spite of. Does that make sense? That informs the marital relationship, doesn't it? Right? It informs the employer-employee relationship. It informs all of our relationships. All of our relationships, just All of them, all of them are informed by this. Does that make sense? Everything. We don't have to stop at relationships. Everything is informed by this. And so what is our big idea? Again, here it is. Man, God's love and adoption of sinners shapes the way that we see and respond to authorities. And in doing so, it magnifies the gospel's work to the world. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is displayed to the world as we, uh, as we live our lives this way. We see a gospel-shaped picture of work, leadership, and submission. We see a gospel-shaped perspective of mission. And so I want, us to, I want us to come in and I want us to land right here. How do we apply this? What do we do with this? We've seen very clearly Paul's desire in terms of application for the church in Ephesus, for Timothy. But how does this translate to you and I here today? Well, I think that we need to ask ourselves a series of questions. And I think we have a slide for this. There we go. How does the gospel... And the fellowship that we enjoy with God through Christ to transform the way that we see and relate with those around us. And you go, wait a second, that sounds super familiar. It ought to. It's where we started our time. I read it like three times. Hopefully you guys write it down. We're coming back to it because we, we're not leaving it. It's the same thing. That's where we are. How does the gospel and the fellowship that we enjoy with God through Christ transformed the way that we see and relate with those around us, especially believers from our work to our play to our family to our fellowship? Does it? Does it transform? And if it doesn't, how do we reorient our lives and perspective around this? Where do we start? If you came in here this morning and you go, Man, all this sounds wonderful, but I have failed miserably. Right? Like, I am not currently doing this. This is not the desire of my heart. I'm not living out the letter or the heart. I need some major help. Here's the deal you're not alone. You're not alone in this. And so, where do we start? Um, It's super simple. It begins with this looking to Christ and this desire for a new heart and recognition of the generosity of God in Christ. Where do we start? We need new hearts. We need new hearts. To live this type of life, to, to care in this most unique way, to serve in this most unique way that transforms culture's understanding of class and position requires a transformed heart. We need new hearts. Do you have a new heart? Christ gives us new hearts, right? We repent and we believe in what he has done and what he has accomplished and he gives us new hearts. He transforms our desires. We change one chain another, We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Christ for righteousness' sake. And we say, magically, this is what I desire now. Right? This is where I am upon this recognition of the generosity of God. I am desiring to live and display um, his character for the world. Here, Here's a question to help us see our need for continued transformation. Are we leaning into this? Are we eager to embrace the unique opportunity to live mission and affirm within culture gospel hope and an active faith? Are we eager for that? Are we leaning in? Are we looking, searching out opportunities, desiring to do this because we understand that it glorifies God and he is deserving of all glory? This is an active faith, right? This is an active faith that informs not only the way that we live, right? And not only the way that we play, but this informs the way that we work. And so how does the gospel shape and inform the way that we relate with those around us in light of the adoption that we have received in and through Christ? That's the question, right? Do we desire to to live mission in this most practical, most applicable way because we understand that Christ is deserving and we desire for the world to stand in awe at who he is and what he has done. Let's pray together.